Well, let me go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah 27. I was, you know, I, I, I'm grateful and I love the Word of God every day. But there are some days when I, I'm just more grateful for the Word than others. And today was one of them. I, at lunchtime today, I don't know what, what possessed me to do this. But, you know, I didn't waste my time last night watching the thing. You know, you know the thing. I didn't, I didn't waste my time watching it last night. But so at lunch today, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I thought I would watch some of the highlights, lowlights, you know, depending on your <laughs> viewpoint. But honestly, I was watching it and I felt like I must be living in an alternate universe. No, really, like listening to, well, first of all, you know, there was something made of the, 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 the Democrat congressman that had removed the American flag from their lapel, whatever, but then replaced it with an abortion, you know, thing from Planned Parenthood, where the O is like in the shape of a heart. And I'm thinking like, Wow, you know, but then I'm listening to our fearless president talking about how, you know, fearless leader, how everything is just on the upswing and our economy's coming back and inflation's coming down and gas price. People are more employed now than ever before. And I'm thinking, man, you got to take a loan out to get eggs at the Walmart, you know? And so I'm listening to that stuff and I'm like, I am so grateful for the word of God to put clarity where there's just confusion, right? Like, I mean, really, it's, it's remarkable. And, and it's, I'm not just picking on Joe Biden. I mean, truthfully, it's just all of the mantras, all of the, you know, secular, political mantra. It just, you know, I, I, I realize, you know, I'm listening, obviously, socialism isn't going to save America, but neither is conservatism. Christ will. Christ is, Christ is the one that brings change to lives. And... um. And that's really the heart of it. You know, the truth is, there is coming a day of judgment. And we're looking in Isaiah right now, at Isaiah's apocalypse, right? And his de- depiction of it. And we're in the final chapter tonight of that. You know, it started back in chapter, chapter 24. It goes through 27. And, you know, I was thinking about it. And I said this, I think, when I, was, when I, when I, when I preached through Revelation. Like, if you want to understand the history of the world, really what you need to understand is the history of God's people, the church, right? Where we are as it regards God's people, will give you a real clue as to where we are in the history and the future of the world. And it's very clear here. You know, this focus in, in chapter 27, again, is ostensibly on the people of God in, in Isaiah's day, the remnant in Isaiah's day. But it becomes clear as we look at this that the scope is really far beyond just the remnant in Isaiah's day. It, it really encompasses the remnant throughout the ages because there are illusions and there are foreshadowings here of, of the New Testament church that is composed of the Jews and the Gentiles, they're everywhere. In fact, what really strikes me when I look at Isaiah 27 is the remarkable continuity and unity of the Word of God from New Testament, or from Old Testament to New. Like, it's really remarkable how God has a plan for all of the world, for the display of His glory, and how God's remnant, His redeemed remnant, play a central role in that plan, and how it's all going to end with the eternal worship, you know, of God. And so... Let's look, I want to look at this text tonight. What we're going to see is sort of a progression. The chapter progresses along this line. It deals with the future, and then it steps back and deals with the present, and then it looks forward to deal with the future again. So that's kind of what takes place. And what, what it begins with here is a, a promise and a picture of future judgment and also of this future renewed vineyard. Okay, so let's just read the whole thing, and then we'll come back, and, and for, then we'll pray, and then we'll come back and kind of break this down. Look at it starting in verse 1 of chapter 27. In that day, the Lord 
With his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will, lay, he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day and night, night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. He has, struck them. has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No Asherim, no incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, surely... Your word is truth, and so I pray that you would give us wisdom to understand your truth. I pray that you would, Father, give us understanding and instruct us by your Holy Spirit to comprehend the truth of this text. Father God, to see how it applies not only to the remnant in in Isaiah's day, but also to the remnant here and now. And I pray, God, that these words would be of encouragement to us. I pray that they would strengthen us and make us steadfast. I pray that they would edify us. And Lord God, I pray that these words would would bring just... um, Comfort and confidence to our souls. That Lord, as we rely upon you and as we trust in you and trust in your name, it is never trust misplaced. That Father God, those who place their trust in you will never be ashamed. So bless us now as we open your word. Grant me your grace by your spirit to teach your truth accurately and faithfully. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let's take a look at this text. And what do we see here? Well, the first thing that jumps out, obviously, at the very beginning is yet again another promise of complete judgment, right? And, and, and you know, Isaiah focuses on this a lot. He focuses very intently on the perfect and the complete judgment that is going to come upon the world when God breaks forth to establish his true kingdom once and for all. But here it's a little different. It's a little kind of strange. Take a look at it. Isaiah says in verse 1, And that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan. 
the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, how do we understand that? Well, the first thing I want you to understand is this. That first phrase, you know, in that day, that's an eschatological phrase, right? It points to um, the end of days, right? It points to that day of God's final judgment and his intervention in world events. But this Leviathan thing, like, what are we talking about here? Where did this come from, right? This comes out of, feels like left field. I mean, we, we obviously, we can assume and we can pr- surmise that Isaiah is using symbolic language, but the question is, what in the world is he talking about, right? Well, there are several views that commentators will put forth in talking about um, what Isaiah has in mind when he talks about Leviathan here. In fact, if you look through Scripture, this isn't the only place the term appears. You see it appear, for instance, in Job, and there commentators generally are of the same mindset that it probably represents a crocodile. And then over in the Psalms, you see Leviathan, and most of them say there that um, you know it represents a whale, but the image here is a little different, isn't it? Now, this isn't a whale or a crocodile, right? This is not. So what is this? Well, some guys say this, is a, this text really is is sort of a, a reference to, a, a figurative you know, picture that Isaiah draws from the mythological Canaanite and, and Babylonian creature that in their, um, in their cultic myths um, had these, the seven head, these seven heads, it was kind of like a dragon, and that it allied, its, allied itself with the god of the sea, and the whole purpose was to overthrow the created order And then as you see it in Isaiah's writing, modulating, you know, into this fleeing and twisting serpent, what Isaiah is really doing is using this concept of Leviathan from, again, the Canaanites and Babylonians that would have been familiar to to the people in Judah and to the Israelites to really represent Satan, right? As he's described in Revelation. You remember in Revelation 12, 9, for instance, where he's called the great dragon and that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, right? The one who's opposed God and his purposes and his people from the beginning. And so one group of commentators say that's what that is. And then other groups of commentators will say, well, Leviathan really just represents, it's just a a picture to represent all of the nations of the world, all the nations of the world that are in concerted opposition to God. Like, you know, he doesn't want to take the time, Isaiah doesn't here, to mention all of them name by name. So he just kind of lumps them all together in the picture of this great monster Leviathan, right? And then there's a third group that I would include myself in that looks at this text and sees both of those things. Obviously, Leviathan stands here for immense power, right? for immense and, and, and powerful rebellion against God. Leviathan stands here. You know, I think including both natural and supernatural powers, all of them arrayed against the sovereign God. And the reason I say that is because the devil lies behind the unified opposition to God in this world, does he not? And so, to my understanding, it is sort of a, a combination of the two. It's, it's a stylized and a figurative picture of evil, both natural and and supernatural. Natural among mankind and supernatural, finding its root and its origin in the rebellion, the original the original rebel, right? Satan. 
But the key thing here is not to get wrapped up in, well, what is Leviathan and trying to mess with Leviathan and all that stuff. The key thing to understanding Isaiah's point here is this, is that when he makes this threefold description of Leviathan, and notice he calls him Leviathan, then the serpent, and then the dragon, right? That that threefold description, which is really cool, is met and destroyed by the sword of God, which also has a threefold description, right? It's described as being hard, great, and strong. So here's Isaiah picturing this massive, you know, the, 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 this massive rebellion in Leviathan against God, right? And, and this powerful and seemingly unconquerable monster, sea creature, serpent, dragon, right? And yet, God has just the tool fitted for the task, right? He's got his word, his, his sword, which is hard and great and strong. And that word hard, that's a word that means, and I want you to get this because this description is really good. I want you to understand what these words mean. The word hard is a word that means fierce or unrelenting, incapable of being dulled, like it's better than any Japanese knife you'll ever own, right? It, it, it is impossible to be resisted. That's the idea here, okay? But even more, he describes it as great. And the idea is that it is mighty and it is powerful and it is sufficient to lay waste to all the enemies of the Lord. Okay? And then last, it's strong. And the idea there is that it's unable to fail. It is dominating. It is powerful. In fact, when I read this description, right, of the sword of, of, of God, the sword that the Lord will wield against Leviathan, I cannot help but think of the description that John gives of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? When he sees him unveiled in all of his power and in all of his glory as he's coming in judgment, right? In Revelation 19. In fact, turn there. I want you to look at it. In Revelation 19, it's, it's, it's in a remarkable picture where he writes starting in verse 11. Then I saw... Heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And this I love. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I mean, I don't know how you read, you know, Isaiah, or, yeah, Isaiah 27, verse 1, and not think of that, right? I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. But the point that Isaiah is emphasizing here is that when God comes in judgment, every single enemy, natural, supernatural, wherever they're found, all those that have corrupted the very good work of God, wherever the spirit of opposition to God has appeared, there the Lord will find them, and he will show himself victorious. So it gives us again this promise of a future judgment that is inescapable, right? 
But then from God's dealing with his enemies, Isaiah turns his focus to God's renewed vineyard. And this is really cool. In fact, it's a remarkable picture. Pick it up in verse 2 through just the beginning of verse 4. God speaks here and he says this, In that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. Right? Well, let me just, let me just stop there and say, why, why is God excited? What's the exclamation point for? Well, compare it to what he found in Isaiah 5 when he was looking at the nation of Judah. Right? Compare it to what he saw there. It, where Judah had yielded wild grapes, had been in sin and rebellion, injustice and bloodshed described them, despite God's goodness to them. You remember? And, and remember what he said about them? You know, I'll just read this to you. Isaiah 5, verse 5 and 6. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. In other words, when God originally, right, was looking at this vineyard that should have produced fruit unto him, he was disgusted, right? He was absolutely just (laughs) disappointed, divine disappointment, right? But now it's excitement. A pleasant, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. Lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Well, that's remarkable, isn't it? This picture gets entirely reversed. God's vineyard, which was once, again, you know, was once so displeasing to him is now pleasant to him it's pleasing in his eyes and not only that god says you know he's the one who keeps it he's the one who waters waters and nourishes it he's the one who watches over it to protect it and sustain it when once before all it produced was displeasure and divine disappointment now to god it's a divine joy to look on his vineyard in fact he makes that statement i have no wrath In the Hebrew, the idea is my wrath has been completely spent. There's nothing left to pour forth. It is is now, it, 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 it is no more. I have no more wrath towards my vineyard. Well, what makes the difference? What makes the difference? That they just all of a sudden start trying harder and doing better and look, God's happy now? No, what makes the difference? What always makes the difference And the transformation from a disobedient people to a people pleasing to God. What always makes the difference? Is it man? What is it? It's God. It's God's grace, right? It's His mercy. It's His compassion. The reason God is delighted in this vineyard, the reason He is is commanding us sing of it, right? The reason He Himself is singing is because He has renewed and transformed His people. And again, right? It's an eschatological picture. It's looking to the final day. The end of the age. God's wrath is is no more. Why? Because His wrath and His divine fury against the sin of His remnant has been poured out where? On Christ. On His remnant substitute. On their representative head. Right? On the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about the words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9 where Paul writes, For God has not destined us for wrath. Praise God. God has not destined us for wrath. He did not leave us in our sin. 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or in Romans 5, we know these words, verses 9 through 11, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Man, isn't that the testimony of all of the redeemed? The chief thing, the chief thing that stirs our souls, that we've not been destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are no longer under the wrath of God, but we have now received reconciliation, and that not as a result of our own works, but because of the mercy and the grace of God? Man, if you get that, if you're standing before, not that this would ever happen, but if you somehow are standing before the gates of heaven and, you know, the angel asks you, why should I let you into heaven? If your answer starts with I, you're starting in the wrong place. It's remarkable. In fact, notice God's heart here. It's so, we're not accustomed to seeing God's heart kind of displayed in this way. It's kind of. I mean, this is anthropomorphic language, obviously. This is God speaking sort of as a man so we'd understand him, but, but it is pretty instructive of his heart. Look what he says starting in the second half of verse 4. He says, Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I have no more wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. In fact, the second rephrasing of that really says, peace let them make with me. And whatever word is is in the position of prominence in Hebrew, that's the focus. So what do we see here? We see God sort of expressing His desire, like for thorns and briars to battle. In other words, the idea is, give me somebody so that I can prove my steadfast love and my unwavering faithfulness to my people. Give me an opponent. But they don't exist. I mean, faced with enemies, he would burn them up and destroy them. Or by his grace, he would turn their hearts to submit to him and make peace with him, right? Either way, the point is this. What Isaiah is driving home is that there are no more enemies for God to fight. There are no more enemies for God to face. No more opponents from which to protect his people because all the rebels and the enemies of God have either been converted Or they've been thoroughly destroyed, never to be seen again. All is peace in this renewed and redeemed vineyard. What a day that will be. All is as it should be, right? Well, what's the mechanism by which this is going to come to pass? Well, this is kind of cool. He tells us in verse 6. God tells us in verse 6. Look what he says. He says, in the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. I want you to notice this. This is very important. And it's easy to skip over this and miss. I want you to notice the different way in which this is introduced. It's not in that day, right? But rather it's in the days to come. Now that's a slight, but it's a significant difference. Let me tell you why. Again, in that day is an eschatological phrase. It points to the great day of God's judgment, right? 
But in the days to come, this, this thought here is being expressed as a future time from Isaiah's time. Okay? That in the coming days, God is going to cause his people to take root. It's not a blessing that's going to be accomplished during the life of the prophet. It's not going to be contemporary with him. But it's one that is going to be fulfilled in some days that are not yet here. In those days, the remnant's going to take root. It's going to be firmly established. Those shoots of it are going to spread out. And it's going to fill the entire world with its fruit. What's he talking about and when's that going to take place? He's talking about the church. He's he's talking about what will happen when the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes and proclaims the kingdom of God. When he comes and dies to populate that kingdom with saints from every age. When the church, composed of Jews and Gentiles, is established and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. As the Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples, you remember this, you will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what will happen as a result? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You will take root, your shoots will go out, and there will be fruit throughout the world. And the missionary proclamation of the gospel is where the truth of verse 6 finds its fulfillment. And so from this then, Isaiah turns to the present, the present situation for the remnant. And he describes the very different purposes of God for his chosen people and for the unbelieving world. In fact, I want you to look at the way that Isaiah describes this stark difference, starting first with the remnant. Just look at verses 7 through 9 with me. He's talking about the people of God. He says, as he struck them, as he struck those who struck them, Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No Asherim or incense altars will remain standing. Well, that's kind of a mouthful. So what's Isaiah emphasizing here? Well, first and the obvious thing is that God's purpose towards his remnant and his purpose towards the rest of the world is very, very different, right? The, the discipline, the correction that Yahweh brought upon his people was of a very different piece than that that he brought upon his and their enemies, right? We've seen that. We've seen that through Isaiah already. God's fatherly discipline. Right, his chastisement of his remnant was designed, is designed to make and to form and to shape his people, right? Not to shatter and destroy them. Whereas his punishment of the wicked is for their destruction, isn't it? Towards the remnant, what Isaiah describes here is a discipline from God that is less severe, that is carefully measured. And that its end was and is atonement for their sins, right? That's where this is going. 
In fact, I want to I wanna make sure that we understand something here real quickly. Um, because it's kind of confusing a little bit in, in the English translation of this. Isaiah is not saying that it's the discipline of God that affects the atonement of His people. Okay, I want to make sure we understand that. Because some people think that they have a standing before God because they've suffered more than anybody else. That's not what he's saying here. Okay? Discipline by itself does not bring atonement. Personal suffering does not produce atonement. Rather, the idea is this. Is that discipline and correction, suffering and hardship, drive the people of God to the only one who can provide atonement, which is God Himself. Okay? Yahweh is the one who provides the atonement price for His people's guilt and for the removal of sin. Okay? And so we're not... You know, just so we're not confused, I want you to notice that Isaiah actually uses the very same expressions, the very same words, to describe God's actions towards the remnant as he does to describe the working of the angel under the direction of the pre-incarnate Christ in Isaiah chapter 6, when he's talking about his own conversion. There he writes this, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, Remember the, with the coal from the, from the altar. He has touched, this, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Here he says, verse 9, Therefore by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No shirim, no incense altars will remain standing. He uses the same words, the exact same words for sin, and for guilt, and for atoned, and for taken away or removed. They're all the exact same words. And what he's helping us to understand is that the experience of redemption of the, of, of the remnant is, the, is exactly like the redemption that he ex- had experienced at the hands of the pre-incarnate Christ. That's the idea here. He's drawing the two together. What he's getting at is that God's the author of atonement for His people. One, you know that is received by faith. And He uses discipline and suffering to drive us ever more to Him. And we understand that, don't we? There are some of us in this room, not all of us, but there are some of us in this room that can testify that, man, to bring me to Him, God used heavy means, man. For, for God to bring, he, he used a crisis of faith. He used hardship or trial or suffering. But that's what He used to bring me to Him. He could not use a soft hand with me. I testify to that. Right? And he still uses those means to grow us. You remember in Romans 5 where Paul writes, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But then he goes on to say this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. His Spirit has been poured into our hearts in the midst of what? In the midst of our suffering. Then Isaiah describes the the fruit of that person that has received the atonement. It's very specific. What he says, look at it again. He says, it's when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. 
No Asherim, no incense altars will remain standing. In other words, here's how you know when, here's how you will know that when the people of Judah are truly redeemed by the Spirit of God, redeemed by faith in the Lord, redeemed by the promise of a coming Redeemer, here's how you identify it. Here's how you identify it in, in, in modern day Christians. You identify it in this. When all of the idols that compete for God, for the allegiance of His people, all those idols that promise death, or promise life but give death, are being systematically eradicated. That's when you know that God's work of grace is coming to full fruit in the lives of His people. It's through the thorough destruction of all of our idols. That's how you know. And here's the, the Asherim poles and the, and the incense altars, but for us it would be our false gods of materialism or self-aggrandizement, or human wisdom, or comfort and ease, or, or sexuality, or self-worship, all of them, their altars dismantled, desecrated, and crushed to pieces, never to be reconstructed again. And again, this description, right? This description of, you know, destroying idols and coming away from them, that, that rings true in the New Testament too, doesn't it? It's not like the, the, the talk about idols disappears when the Old Testament, when you move from Malachi into Matthew. It's still right there. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting verse 16, Paul writes, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we're the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Idols. I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. Says the Lord Almighty. But it's not just Paul. Apostle John. Powerfully says at the end of his first epistle. He says we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. We're no longer ignorant. We're no longer like those who worship things made with our hands or made in our strength or anything else. He's come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves, what? From idols. Keep yourself from a lesser God. Keep yourself from a God that's imaginary. Keep yourself from idols. And God's discipline towards His remnants always for this purpose, right? Give them true understanding, true standing with Him in Christ. Put to death those idols. But by contrast, God's dealings with the world are very, very different. Look at it. Isaiah says, starting in verse 10, For the fortified city is solitary. A habitation deserted and forsaken, like the wilderness where the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. Now, we've seen this kind of description before, haven't we? This is not a new description. The coming kingdom of Yahweh, we know, is going to render the city of man, the, the fortified city, the exalted city, 
the, the kingdom of man that's erected without any reference to or reverence for God. We know that the coming of the kingdom of God is going to render that city utterly destroyed and forsaken and abandoned, right? A wilderness place. Here he talks about where calves graze or a dry forest where women come and break off the branches to go home and make fires or whatever. But why is that? And he puts it very succinctly here. And I want you to see this. And I want you to see the incredible unity and continuity this has with Romans. He says, For this is a people without discernment. Therefore he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. The word discernment here is a really important word. It's a word that's used to describe wisdom and knowledge and understanding. It's a word that is used to describe the ability to discern between what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, what is true, and what is almost true. And specifically here, as it regards God, it's the refusal to acknowledge the universal obligation upon mankind to acknowledge their Creator. That's what this is about. It's the very indictment that Paul brings against fallen man. In Romans chapter 1 when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, idols, resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. The description of a people without discernment dovetails perfectly with that, doesn't it? And they've made themselves worthy of judgment. It's not that God has hidden Himself. It's that they have refused to regard God. And in fact, I want you to see, this is really remarkable, and I don't know why it's not translated this way, but I want you to see that the word that is translated by the phrase, he who formed them will show them no favor, is actually the Hebrew word for potter. Hmm. It's actually the Hebrew word for potter. And so here in Isaiah, we hear, I guess to use a musical term, the pre-chorus to Paul's words in Romans 9, right? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, right? Who have prepared themselves for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God holds the right to give mercy to whom he gives mercy and compassion to whom he gives compassion, right? Isaiah says it. 
Paul says it. We see it throughout the scripture. Moses, right? Records God saying that. I mean, the unity of the scriptures is amazing, is it not? And then the last thing I want you to see is how Isaiah turns to the picture of this glorious future, right? So it's future, present, future, right? Here's the future again. He closes his apocalypse with these words. In that day, here's that eschatological phrase again, right? From the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, or the wadi of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. I want you to see what Isaiah does here. He uses two images to describe the harvest that is coming. The first one's agricultural, right? In fact, here's what he does. He describes the original borders of the promised land as they were, as they were given to Israel. The original borders were from the river Euphrates to the wadi of, of Egypt, right? And in that, inside those borders, Isaiah pictures the Lord threshing out the grain, separating the wheat from the chaff, sifting true spiritual Israel from that which is not, right? One by one, gathering his people to himself. And, you know, here's the thing. It's not that that gathering happens all at once on the day of judgment. It happens over time as well. We see it in, in the church today, don't we? We see how, how God, through various means and methods, divides the, the wheat from the chaff, don't we? The wheat from the tares, whether it's through doctrinal means, you know? Oh, I can't agree with that. Or it's trials or tribulations or whatever it is. The, the, you know, the cares and the desires of the world, you know? All the descriptions that are given for the reasons people fall away in the parable of the soils. God separates His true people from the faults, His remnant from the world. But eventually it's going to come to a full completion, right? A couple of texts come to mind when I think about that. First of all, I think about what Jesus said in John 6 when He said, starting in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. One by one, every single kernel of God's grain will be gathered. The second one I think of is, is the, from his Mount Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. When he says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And then the second picture that Isaiah uses here is, is of the call to worship, right? The trumpet that, that was blown whenever the nation was called to worship. This great, you know, loud, thunderous trumpet, right? Only here, the trumpet calls all God's people that are throughout the world, pictured by Assyria and Egypt, 
to come to the worship of the Lord forever. And the whole picture that Isaiah is saying is this, is that all the strands of this apocalypse, they all converge in a single terminus, a single point. And that single point is the worship of Yahweh. Now I was thinking about that. You know, I've heard this, and I'm sure you've heard it too, that Christianity and the worship of God is really just a form of escapism. That's a crutch if you need it. You know, you, you, you crutch needers, right? It's an escapism from reality. But you know what? Worship is not an escape from reality. You know what it is? It's a return to it. It's a return to it. That's why Isaiah closes this entire book, Isaiah 66, starting in verse 22, and he says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. That to me, that is one of the greatest comforts of all. I have no clue what's going to happen tomorrow. But you know where I, where I find my greatest joy and comfort? Is I know what the day of days brings. And not just in that moment, but forever. And it is a return to true reality. Which is God unquestionably and irresistibly and unchallenged upon His throne. And praise God when that day comes. Praise God when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ and He reigns forever. Thoughts, comments, questions, anything. Insights. Yeah. God's chosen. Yeah. Israelites, the Jewish people. Um, they're his chosen forever. Is that I mean? Well, they are, they were ethnically his chosen nation as the vehicle for redemption. But as Paul teaches us in Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. And in other words, within Israel is God's truly chosen people that he will not abandon and that will ultimately be saved. But the nation of Israel as a whole, like all Jews as a whole, no, no. The remnant. The remnant is that group within the whole that is truly redeemed. Part of that remnant? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, we're part of that remnant too. Yeah, sometimes people will try to draw a distinction between... Israel and the church, you know, like, so you've got Israel and there's a special set of circumstances and a special way that God deals with them and then the church and there's a special way that God deals with them. And what Paul teaches very clearly is that that distinction doesn't exist anymore. There is no, that, there is no distinction for all of fall, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no distinction for the Lord is Lord over all, as we'll look at in Romans 10 this weekend. There is not that this Sunday, there is not that distinction of like just because somebody is Jewish doesn't mean they're saved. Just because somebody is Jewish and they follow the law doesn't redeem them. You can't redeem yourself by the law. And so there is not like this separate like distinction between the 
you know, Jews and, and Gentiles in the church, the dividing wall of hostility between us has been taken down and we are all one man in Christ. That's the important thing to comprehend. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Let's pray. Father, there's a, a great wonder and glory to your truth, the mystery that accompanies it, but also, Father, a clear revelation that you will accomplish all things according to your purpose and your plan and the counsel of your will. And Lord, at the very center of your purpose and your plan is is your sovereign lordship, the glory of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the riches of your glory to your people, the kindness and mercy as a testimony throughout all of the ages to every celestial being. And so I'm grateful, Father God, that you have redeemed us. I'm grateful for your faithfulness to save us. I'm grateful, Lord God, for how good you are to us and for the way, Lord God, that I I just am grateful for the way that you pursued us to save us, but you continue to pursue us to sanctify us. And that's, that's a great gift. And so, Lord, as we, you know, as we live in this world, awaiting the day that is coming, God, I pray that we would do so with faithfulness and with confidence and with conviction born of your spirit. I just pray now, Lord, as we gather into some groups to pray that you would turn our hearts to you and that we would ask of you mighty things that only you can do and that, Lord God, you would, um, that you would, you would make us to pray in accordance with your will and that you would do glorious things as we seek your face. We love you. We give you all honor and praise. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.